This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alan Quatermain by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 15 Sorais's Song After our escape from Agon and his pious crew, we returned to our quarters in the palace and had a very good time. The two queens, the nobles, and the people vied with each other in doing us honor and showering gifts upon us. As for that painful little incident of the hippopotami, it sank into oblivion, where we were quite content to leave it. Every day deputations and individuals waited on us to examine our guns and clothing, our chain shirts, and our instruments, especially our watches, with which they were much delighted. In short, we became quite the rage, so much so that some of the fashionable young swells among the Zuvendi began to copy the cut of some of our clothes, notably Sir Henry's shooting jacket. One day, indeed, a deputation waited on us, and, as usual, Good donned his full-dress uniform for the occasion. This deputation seemed somehow to be a little different class to those who generally came to visit us. They were little insignificant men of an excessively polite, not to say servile, demeanor, and their attention appeared to be chiefly taken up with observing the details of Good's full-dress uniform, of which they took copious notes and measurements. Good was much flattered at the time, not suspecting that he had to deal with the six leading tailors of Milosis. A fortnight afterwards, however, when, on attending court as usual, he had the pleasure of seeing some seven or eight Zuvendi mashers arrayed in all the glory of a very fair imitation of his full-dress uniform, he changed his mind. I shall never forget his face of astonishment and disgust. It was after this, chiefly to avoid remark, and also because our clothes were wearing out and had to be saved up, that we resolved to adopt the native dress, and a very comfortable one we found it, though I am bound to say that I look sufficiently ridiculous in it, and as for Alphonse, only Umslopogas would have none of these things. When his muka was worn out, the fierce old Zulu made him a new one, and went about unconcerned, as grim and naked as his own battle-axe. Meanwhile, we pursued our study of the language steadily, and made very good progress. On the morning following our adventure in the temple, three grave and reverend seniors presented themselves, armed with manuscript books, ink horns, and feather pens, and indicated that they had been sent to teach us. So, with the exception of Umslopogas, we all buckled to with a will, doing four hours a day. As for Umslopogas, he would have none of that, either. He did not wish to learn that women's talk, not he. And when one of the teachers advanced on him with a book and an ink horn, and waved them before him in a mild, persuasive way, much as a churchwarden invitingly shakes the offertory bag 
under the nose of a rich but niggardly parishioner, he sprang up with a fierce oath and flashed in Kosikas before the eyes of our learned friend, and there was an end of the attempt to teach him Zuvendi. Thus we spent our mornings in useful occupation, which grew more and more interesting as we proceeded, and the afternoons were given up to recreation. Sometimes we made trips, notably one to the gold mines, and another to the marble quarries, both of which I wished I had space and time to describe. And sometimes we went out hunting buck, with dogs trained for that purpose, and a very exciting sport it is, as the country is full of agricultural enclosures, and our horses were magnificent. This is not to be wondered at, seeing that the royal stables were at our command, in addition to which we had four splendid saddle-horses, given to us by Nyleptha. Sometimes, again, we went hawking, a pastime that is in great favor among the Zuvendi, who generally fly their birds at a species of partridge which is remarkable for the swiftness and strength of its flight. When attacked by the hawk, this bird appears to lose its head, and instead of seeking cover, flies high into the sky, thus offering wonderful sport. I have seen one of these partridges soar up almost out of sight when followed by the hawk. Still better sport is offered by a variety of solitary snipe as big as a small woodcock, which is plentiful in this country, and which is flown at with a very small, agile, and highly trained hawk with an almost red tail. The zigzagging of the great snipe and the lightning rapidity of the flight and movements of the red-tailed hawk make the pastime a delightful one. Another variety of the same amusement is the hunting of a very small species of antelope with trained eagles, and it certainly is a marvelous sight to see the great bird soar and soar till he is nothing but a black speck in the sunlight, and then suddenly come dashing down like a cannonball upon some cowering buck that is hidden in a patch of grass from everything but that piercing eye. Still finer is the spectacle when the eagle takes the buck running. On other days we would pay visits to the country seats at some of the great lord's beautiful fortified places, and the villages clustering beneath their walls. Here we saw vineyards and cornfields and well-kept park-like grounds, with such timber in them as filled me with delight, for I do love a good tree. There it stands, so strong and sturdy and yet so beautiful, a very type of the best sort of man. How proudly it lifts its bare head to the winter storms, and with what a full heart it rejoices when the spring has come again. How grand its voice is, too, when it talks with the wind. A thousand Aeolian harps cannot equal the beauty of the sighing of a great tree in leaf. All day it points to the sunshine, and all night to the stars, and thus passionless and yet full of life, it endures through the centuries, come storm, come shine, drawing its sustenance 
from the cool bosom of its mother earth. And as the slow years roll by, learning the great mysteries of growth and of decay, and so on and on through generations, outliving individuals, customs, dynasties, all save the landscape it adorns, and human nature, till the appointed day when the wind wins the long battle and rejoices over a reclaimed space, or decay puts the last stroke to his fungus-fingered work. Ah, one should always think twice before one cuts down a tree. In the evenings it was customary for Sir Henry, Good, and myself to dine, or rather sup, with their majesties. Not every night, indeed, but about three or four times a week, whenever they had not much company, or the affairs of state would allow of it. And I am bound to say that those little suppers were quite the most charming things of their sort that I ever had to do with. How true is the saying that the very highest in rank are always the most simple and kindly. It is from your half-and-half half sort of people that you get pomposity and vulgarity, the difference between the two being very much what one sees every day in England, between the old, out-at-elbows, broken-down country family and the overbearing, purse-proud people who come and take the place. I really think that Nilephtha's greatest charm is her sweet simplicity and her kindly, genuine interest even in little things. She is the simplest woman I ever knew, and where her passions are not involved, one of the sweetest. But she can look queenly enough when she likes, and be as fierce as any savage, too. For instance, never shall I forget that scene when I for the first time was sure that she was really in love with Curtis. It came about in this way, all through Good's weakness for ladies' society. When we had been employed for some three months in learning Zuvendi, it struck Master Good that he was getting rather tired of the old gentleman who did us the honor to lead us in the way that we should go. So he proceeded, without saying a word to anybody else, to inform them that it was a peculiar fact, but that we could not make any real progress in the deeper intricacies of a foreign language unless we were taught by ladies. Young ladies, he was careful to explain. In his own country, he pointed out, it was habitual to choose the very best-looking and most charming girls who could be found to instruct any strangers who happened to come that way, etc. All of this the old gentleman swallowed open-mouthed. There was, they admitted, reason in what he said, since the contemplation of the beautiful, as their philosophy taught, induced a certain porosity of mind, similar to that produced upon the physical body by the healthful influences of sun and air. 
Consequently, it was probable that we might absorb the Zuvendi tongue a little faster if suitable teachers could be found. Another thing was that, as the female sex was naturally loquacious, good practice would be gained in the viva voce department of our studies. To all of this, Good gravely assented, and the learned gentleman departed, assuring him that their orders were to fall in with our wishes in every way, and that, if possible, our views should be met. Imagine, therefore, the surprise and disgust of myself, and I trust and believe Sir Henry, when, on entering the room where we were accustomed to carry on our studies the following morning, we found instead of our usual venerable tutors, three of the best-looking young women whom Milosis could produce, and that is saying a good deal, who blushed and smiled and curtsied, and gave us to understand that they were there to carry on our instruction. Then Good, as we gazed at one another in bewilderment, thought fit to explain, saying that it had slipped his memory before, but the old gentleman had told him on the previous evening that it was absolutely necessary that our further education should be carried on by the other sex. I was overwhelmed and appealed to Sir Henry for advice in such a crisis. Well, he said, you see the ladies are here, ain't they? If we sent them away, don't you think it might hurt their feelings, eh? One doesn't like to be rough, you see, and they look regular blues, don't they, eh? By this time, Good had already begun his lessons with the handsomest of the three, and so with a sigh, I yielded. That day everything went very well. The young ladies were certainly very clever, and they only smiled when we blundered. I never saw Good so attentive to his books before, and even Sir Henry appeared to tackle Zuvendi with a renewed zest. Ah, thought I, will it always be thus? Next day we were much more lively. Our work was pleasingly interspersed with questions about our native country, what the ladies were like there, etc., all of which we answered as best we could in Zuvendi, and I heard Good assuring his teacher that her loveliness was to the beauties of Europe as the sun to the moon, to which she replied with a little toss of the head that she was a plain teaching woman and nothing else, and that it was not kind to deceive a poor girl so. Then we had a little singing that was really charming, so natural and unaffected. The Zuvendi love songs are most touching. On the third day, we were all quite intimate. Good narrated some of his previous love affairs to his fair teacher, and so moved was she that her sighs mingled with his own. I discoursed with mine, a merry blue-eyed girl, upon Zuvendian art, and never saw that she was waiting for an opportunity to drop a specimen of the cockroach tribe down my back whilst in the corner Sir Henry and his governess appeared, so far as I could judge, to be going through a lesson framed on the great educational principles laid down by Wackford Squeers, Esquire, 
though in a very modified or rather spiritualized form. The lady softly repeated the Zuvendi word for hand, and he took hers. Eyes, and he gazed deep into her brown orbs. Lips, and... But just at that moment my young lady dropped the cockroach down my back and ran away laughing. Now, if there is one thing I loathe more than another, it is cockroaches, and moved quite beyond myself, and yet laughing at her impudence, I took up the cushion she had been sitting on and threw it after her. Imagine then my shame, my horror, and my distress when the door opened and attended by two guards only, in walked Nilepsa. The cushion could not be recalled. It missed the girl and hit one of the guards on the head. But I instantly and ineffectually tried to look as though I had not thrown it. Good ceased his singing and began to murder Zuvendi at the top of his voice, and Sir Henry whistled and looked silly. As for the poor girls, they were utterly dumbfounded. And Nilepsa, she drew herself up till her frame seemed to tower even above that of the tall guards, and her face went first red, and then pale as death. Guards, she said in a quiet, choked voice, and pointing at the fair but unconscious disciple of Wackford Squeers, slay me that woman. The men hesitated, as well they might. Will ye do my bidding, she said again in the same voice, or will ye not? Then they advanced upon the girl with uplifted spears. By this time Sir Henry had recovered himself, and saw that the comedy was likely to turn into a tragedy. Stand back, he said in a voice of thunder, at the same time getting in front of the terrified girl. Shame on thee, Nilepsa, shame! Thou shalt not kill her. Doubtless thou hast good reason to try to protect her. Thou couldst hardly do less in honor, answered the infuriated queen. But she shall die, she shall die. And she stamped her little foot. It is well, he answered, then will I die with her. I am thy servant, O queen. Do with me even as thou wilt. And he bowed towards her and fixed his clear eyes contemptuously on her face. I could wish to slay thee too, she answered, for thou dost make a mock of me. And then feeling that she was mastered, and I suppose not knowing what else to do, she burst into such a storm of tears, and looked so royally lovely in her passionate distress, that, old as I am, I must say I envied Curtis his task of supporting her. It was rather odd to see him holding her in his arms, considering what had just passed, a thought that seemed to occur to herself, for presently she wrenched herself free and went, leaving us all much disturbed. Presently, however, 
one of the guards returned with a message to the girls that they were, on pain of death, to leave the city and return to their homes in the country, and that no further harm would come to them. And accordingly they went, one of them remarking philosophically that it could not be helped, and that it was a satisfaction to know that they had taught us a little serviceable zuvendi. Mine was an exceedingly nice girl, and overlooking the cockroach, I made her a present of my favorite lucky sixpence with a hole in it when she went away. After that, our former masters resumed their course of instruction, needless to say, to my great relief. That night, when in fear and trembling we attended the royal supper table, we found that Nyleptha was laid up with a bad headache. That headache lasted for three whole days, but on the fourth she was present at supper as usual, and with the most gracious and sweet smile gave Sir Henry her hand to lead her to the table. No allusion was made to the little affair described above, beyond her saying, with a charming air of innocence, that when she came to see us at our studies the other day, she had been seized with a giddiness from which she had only now recovered. She supposed, she added with a touch of the humor that was common to her, that it was the sight of people working so hard which had affected her. In reply, Sir Henry said, dryly, that he had thought she did not look quite herself on that day, whereat she flashed one of those quick glances of hers at him, which, if he had the feelings of a man, must have gone through him like a knife, and the subject dropped entirely. Indeed, after supper was over, Nyleptha condescended to put us through an examination to see what we had learnt, and to express herself well satisfied with the results. Indeed, she proceeded to give us, especially Sir Henry, a lesson on her own account, and very interesting we found it. And all the while that we talked, or rather tried to talk, and laughed, Sereus would sit there in her carven ivory chair, and look at us, and read us all like a book, only from time to time saying a few words, and smiling that quick ominous smile of hers, which was more like a flash of summer lightning on a dark cloud than anything else. And as near to her as he dared would sit good, worshipping through his eyeglass, for he really was getting seriously devoted to this somber beauty, of whom, speaking personally, I felt terribly afraid. I watched her keenly, and soon I found out that for all her apparent impassibility, she was at heart bitterly jealous of Nyleptha. Another thing I found out, and the discovery filled me with dismay, and that was that she also was growing devoted to Sir Henry Curtis. Of course, I could not be sure. It is not easy to read so cold and haughty a woman, but I noticed one or two little things, and, as elephant hunters know, dried grass shows which way the wind has set. And so another three months passed over us, by which time we had all attained 
to a very considerable mastery of the Zuvendi language, which is an easy one to learn. And as time went on, we became great favorites with the people, and even with the courtiers, gaining an enormous reputation for cleverness, because, as I think I have said, Sir Henry was able to show them how to make glass, which was a national want, and also, by the help of a twenty-year almanac that we had with us, to predict various heavenly combinations, which were quite unsuspected by the native astronomers. We even succeeded in demonstrating the principle of the steam engine to a gathering of the learned men, who were filled with amazement, and several other things of the same sort we did. And so it came about that the people made up their minds that we must on no account be allowed to go out of the country, which indeed was an apparent impossibility even if we had wished it, and we were advanced to great honor and made officers to the bodyguards of the sister queens, while permanent quarters were signed to us in the palace, and our opinion was asked upon questions of national policy. But blue as the sky seemed, there was a cloud, and a big one, on the horizon. We had indeed heard no more of those confounded hippopotami, but it is not on that account to be supposed that our sacrilege was forgotten, or the enmity of the great and powerful priesthood headed by Agon appeased. On the contrary, it was burning the more fiercely, because it was necessarily suppressed, and what had perhaps begun in bigotry was ending in downright direct hatred born of jealousy. Hitherto the priests had been the wise men of the land, and were on this account, as well as from superstitious causes, looked on with peculiar veneration. But our arrival, with our outlandish wisdom, and our strange inventions, and hints of unimagined things, dealt a serious blow to this state of affairs, and among the educated Zuvendi went far towards destroying the priestly prestige. A still worse affront to them, however, was the favor with which we were regarded, and the trust that was reposed in us. All these things tended to make us excessively obnoxious to the great sacerdotal clan, the most powerful because the most united faction in the kingdom. Another source of imminent danger to us was the rising envy of some of the great lords, headed by Nasta, whose antagonism to us had at best been but thinly veiled, and which now threatened to break out into open flame. Nasta had for some years been a candidate for an Ilepthus hand in marriage, and when we appeared on the scene, I fancy, from all I could gather, that though there were still many obstacles in his path, success was by no means out of his reach. But now all this had changed. The coy Nilepthe smiled no more in his direction, and he was not slow to guess the cause. Infuriated and alarmed, he turned his attention to Sereus, only to find that he might as well try to woo a mountainside. 
with a bitter jest or two about his fickleness, that door was closed on him forever. So Nasta bethought himself of the thirty thousand wild swordsmen who would pour down at his bidding through the northern mountain passes, and no doubt vowed to adorn the gates of Milosis with our heads. But first he determined, as I learned, to make one more attempt, and to demand the hand of Nyleptha in the open court after the formal annual ceremony of the signing of the laws that had been proclaimed by the queens during the year. Of this astounding fact, Nyleptha heard with simulated nonchalance, and with a little trembling of the voice, herself informed us of it as we sat at supper on the night preceding the great ceremony of the law-giving. Sir Henry bit his lip, and do what he could to prevent it plainly showed his agitation. "'And what answer will the Queen be pleased to give the great Lord?' asked I in a jesting manner. "'Answer, Macumazahn, for we had elected to pass by our Zulu names in Zuvendis, she said with a pretty shrug of her ivory shoulder. "'Nay, I know not. What is a poor woman to do when the wooer has thirty thousand swords wherewith to urge his love?' And from under her long lashes she glanced at Curtis. Just then we rose from the table to adjourn into another room. "'Quatermain, a word, quick,' said Sir Henry to me. "'Listen, I have never spoken about it, but surely you have guessed. "'I love Nyleptha. What am I to do?' "'Fortunately, I had more or less already taken the question into consideration "'and was therefore able to give such answer as seemed the wisest to me. "'You must speak to Nyleptha tonight,' I said. "'Now is your time, now or never.' Listen, in the sitting chamber get near to her, and whisper to her to meet you at midnight by the Radimas statue at the end of the great hall. I will keep watch for you there. Now or never, Curtis. We passed on into the other room. Nyleptha was sitting, her hands before her, and a sad, anxious look upon her lovely face. A little way off was Sorais talking to Good in her slow, measured tones. The time went on. In another quarter of an hour I knew that, according to their habit, the queens would retire. As yet, Sir Henry had had no chance of saying a word in private. Indeed, though we saw much of the royal sisters, it was by no means easy to see them alone. I racked my brains, and at last an idea came to me. "'Will the Queen be pleased,' I said, bowing low before Sirius, "'to sing to her servants? "'Our hearts are heavy this night. "'Sing to us, O Lady of the Night.' Sirius's favorite name among the people. My songs, Macumazahn, are not such as to lighten the heavy heart. Yet will I sing if it pleases thee, she answered. 
and she rose and went a few paces to a table whereon lay an instrument not unlike a zither and struck a few wandering chords then suddenly like the notes of some deep-throated bird her rounded voice sang out in song so wildly sweet and yet with so eerie and sad a refrain that it made the very blood stand still up up soared the golden notes that seemed to melt far away and then to grow again and travel on laden with all the sorrow of the world and all the despair of the lost it was a marvelous song but I had not time to listen to it properly. However, I got the words of it afterwards, and here is a translation of its burden, so far as it admits of being translated at all. Sereus's Song As a desolate bird that through darkness its lost way is winging, as a hand that is helplessly raised when death's sickle is swinging. So is life, I the life that lends passion and breath to my singing. As the nightingale's song that is full of a sweetness unspoken, as a spirit unbarring the gates of the skies for a token, so is love, I the love that shall fall when his pinion is broken. As the tramp of the legions when trumpets their challenge are sending. As the shout of the storm god when lightnings the black sky are rending. So is power, I the power that shall lie in the dust at its ending. So short is our life, yet with space for all things to forsake us, a bitter delusion, a dream from which naught can awake us, till death's dogging footsteps at morn or at eve shall o'ertake us. Refrain Oh, the world is fair at the dawning, 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 but the red sun sinks in blood. The red sun sinks in blood. I only wish that I could write down the music, too. Now, Curtis, now. I whispered when she began the second verse and turned my back. Nilepha, he said, for my nerves were so much on the stretch that I could hear every word, low as it was spoken, even through Sereus's divine notes. Nilepha, I must speak with thee this night. Upon my life, I must. Say me not nay. Oh, say me not nay. How can I speak with thee? she answered, looking fixedly before her. Queens are not like other people. I am surrounded and watched. Listen, Nilepha, thus. I will be before the statue of Radimas in the great hall at midnight. I have the countersign and can pass in. Macumazahn will be there to keep guard, and with him the Zulu. O oh, come, my queen, deny me not. It is not seemly, she murmured, and tomorrow. Just then the music began to die in the last wail of the refrain, 
and Sirius slowly turned her round. "'I will be there,' said Nyleptha hurriedly. "'On thy life, see that thou fail me not.'" End of chapter 15